Thank you, Stu, very much. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see all of you here. For those of you that are joining us online, welcome. We're very glad that you can do that as well. I would like to ask you, please, to turn to the book of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles. We're still going to be talking about revival, but this, uh, by way of review, I thought it might be nice to look at the parallel passage to what we've been studying in 2 Kings about King Josiah and look at a few portions here from 2 Chronicles 34 where we get a few more details about some things that have gone on. So, with that, 2 Chronicles 34, and I'm going to read a few verses there and then also we'll be reading out of chapter 35. Uh, So, with that in mind, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's Holy Word, by all means, please Join me as I read. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1 of 2 Chronicles 34. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh and walked in the ways of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy... He began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim and the carved and the metal images. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence. And he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke in pieces the Asherim and the carved and metal images. And he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali, in their ruins all around, he broke down the altars and beat the Asherim and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Let's jump over to chapter 35. Those opening verses of chapter 34 sort of summarize um, things uh, as... uh, we've seen already. But now we're going to move on to speak about the Passover that Josiah kept. And we've read about that in 2 Kings 23 already. Here uh, we'll read it from 2 Chronicles and you'll see a few more details come to light. So beginning at verse 1, Josiah kept a Passover to Yahweh in Jerusalem and they slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the first month. He appointed the priests to their offices and encouraged them in the service of the house of Yahweh. And he said to the Levites who taught all Israel and who were holy to Yahweh, put the holy ark in the house that Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, built. You need not carry it on your shoulders. Now serve Yahweh your God and his people Israel. Prepare yourselves according to your father's houses by your divisions as prescribed in the writing of David, king of Israel, and the documents of Solomon, his son. And stand in the holy place, according to the groupings of the fathers' houses of your brothers, the lay people, and according to the divisions of the Levites by fathers' household. And slaughter the Passover lamb, and consecrate yourselves, and prepare for your brothers to do according to the word of Yahweh by Moses. Then Josiah contributed to the lay people as Passover offerings for all who were present, lambs and young goats from the flock to the number of 30,000. And 3,000 bulls, these were from the king's possessions. And his officials contributed willingly to the people, to the priests and to the Levites, Hilkiah, Zechariah, and Jehiel, the chief officers of the house of God, gave to the priests for the Passover offerings 2,600 Passover lambs and 300 bulls. Conaniah also, and Shemaiah, and Nathanael, his brothers, and Hashabiah, and Jael, and Jozebad, the chiefs of the Levites, gave to the Levites for the Passover offerings 5,000 lambs and young goats and 500 bulls. When the service had been prepared for, the priests stood in their place, and the Levites in their divisions according to the king's command. And they slaughtered the Passover lamb, and the the priests threw the blood that they had received from them while the 
Levites flayed the sacrifices and they set aside the burnt offerings that they might distribute them according to the groupings of the fathers' houses of the lay people to offer to Yahweh as it is written in the book of Moses. And so they did with the bulls. And they roasted the Passover lamb with fire according to the rule. And they boiled the holy offerings in pots and cauldrons and in pans and carried them quickly to all the lay people. And afterward they prepared for themselves and for the priests because the priests, the sons of Aaron, were offering the burnt offerings and the fat parts until night. So the Levites prepared for themselves and for the priests, the sons of Aaron. The singers, the sons of Asaph, were in their place according to the command of David. And Asaph and Heman and Jeduthun, the king's seer, and the gatekeepers were at each gate. They did not need to depart from their service, for their brothers, the Levites, prepared for them. So all the service of Yahweh was prepared that day to keep the Passover and to offer burnt offerings on the altar of Yahweh according to the command of King Josiah. And the people of Israel who were present kept the Passover at that time and the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days. No Passover like it had been kept in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet. None of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as was kept by Josiah and the priests and the Levites and all Judah and Israel who were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In the 18th year of the reign of Josiah, this Passover was kept. God adds his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Please be seated. So, about five weeks ago, we started on this short little interlude, um, as it was intended to be, uh, from our study in the life of King David. And it's interesting, even as we've gone through the past several weeks and as we've read here, how many times the name of David crops up again as the Lord used him, the man after his own heart, to set things in motion that by the time of Josiah needed to be revived. So we've been talking about revival, particularly in light of what's going on in our nation, and particularly about a month and a half ago or so, with the revival, uh, so-called at least, of uh, there at the campus of Asbury University, and, and through some other campuses as well around the country. Things that uh, made people get pretty excited and look at with a hopeful, expectant eye, desiring uh, revival as much as they understood what that revival was. And it's been interesting. I don't know how much study of this you have done uh, over the past few weeks. But if you look at the accounts of, of these events and see what is termed revival, sometimes, it's interesting to see the variety <laughs> of definitions that people come up with, uh, what their expectations are, what they think revival is. We've noticed some things that it uh, is not, however. It's not about mere external reform, though there were certainly external reforms that King Josiah did. He was not content with just ex externally changing things back to even to the way that they were or back even to the way that they were supposed to be. Yes, that was done. And yes, obviously, we look to see, uh, as we've looked at this, we can see that he definitely worked hard to put things back to the way they should be. But Josiah was much more concerned uh, that his reforms and the revival that would take place in Israel was not just a matter of externally practicing the right things. He was concerned about the heart, beginning with his own. And in this particular passage that we just read here, I think you could see pretty clearly, if you doubted it before, that Josiah's heart was definitely involved in what he was doing. He was not content to just Say, yep, we need to be revived. Come on, people, let's do this. He put his money where his mouth was. And we'll look, we'll look at that a little bit more as we go on. We noted right at the very beginning that Josiah's revival didn't just happen on the spur of the moment. 
Now, sometimes the Lord's Spirit does absolutely come on, come on folks in a, in a powerful way that's unexpected. In fact, I would say that's one of the hallmarks of revival, that it's an unexpected outpouring of the Holy Spirit, at least to the degree that it's done. But I would also argue, if you look at genuine revivals in history, that they didn't just one day things were horrible, things were ungodly, things were in a mess, and then suddenly, all of a sudden now everything's wonderful. I can't think of a single instance of any revival that ever happened, that I've ever read about in, in Europe, in America, that did not begin with somebody humbling themselves before God. With somebody going back to His Word. With somebody getting on their knees in prayer. We often look for revival, we ask for revival, we hope for revival, but we don't do anything to actually encourage it. We're just waiting for the Lord to hit us over the head with a baseball bat and say, now you're revived. Of course, that sort of would defeat the purpose, but I think you know what I mean. Josiah, from the time he was a, a, a boy, started to seek the Lord. He was in his teens. Eighth, he started to reign when he was eight, and in his eighth year he started to seek the Lord, we read here. And by his twelfth year, he was already starting to do some basic reforms. He was concerned about what was happening in his kingdom. And then we noted that in his 18th year, as he was more and more exercised about all of this, he looked at the condition of the temple and said, the place where God's name has been placed is a mess. And it needs to be cleaned up. It needs to be repaired. And that desire for the name of God being upheld was the... the the thing that burst the dam. And revival really began then, though there had been some initial preparatory sorts of things that had been going on for some years before then. And it wasn't, again, we spent some time talking about this as well, that it was not just getting that building in shape. That was important. But Josiah was particularly moved when the Word of God was found, when it was read in his hearing, and his heart was broken, because he knew that even up to that point, all of the, the external reformations and things that he had done were not enough. And his heart was convicted by God's Word for himself, but also for the nation who had forsaken their God. They'd walked in rebellion against Him. We looked at some other passages from earlier in the book of the Kings, where the people, if you remember, if you were here, you were listening uh, before, you re may remember that the people of Israel and Judah were, well, they were worshiping Yahweh all right, but they just sort of added him in with all the other gods. They, they didn't discontinue worshiping everything else. They just wanted to make sure they covered all their bases. Just Israel had long wanted to be like the other nations. Well, the other nations were just like that. They had all kinds of gods, uh, gods that they uh, worshipped uh, for the, the, the sun and the moon and the harvest and the, the waters and their health and, and fertility and every other thing that you can imagine they had gods for. And uh, they were happy to add Yahweh to that pantheon of other gods. Josiah was convicted by that when God's word was read. And now he had real shape to those reforms. Now he had real direction. Not just of his own imagining, not of, of his own uh, sense of what was right and wrong, which we can tell from what we read here in 2 Chronicles early on. Whoever was teaching him, whatever, however he knew what he knew at that time, he had some good sensibilities But I thank God that when he read that scroll, he didn't pick it up, he didn't read it and hear it and go, oh boy, I'm sure glad that I've been doing that. 
well, I've got the right, I've, I've been having the right thinking all along. Pat myself on the back. He didn't do that at all. He tore his clothes. He knew that all he had done was insufficient. And genuine revival began with him and spread by his example and his command. So that uh, we looked the last uh, couple of weeks, we've, we've been looking in 2 Kings 23, where he renews a covenant. Now, I, I skipped over the, the uh, portion uh, about the, making the covenant, uh, but we'll read it again in a, in a, in a bit. Uh, we will read it uh, from Second Chronicles because a few more details are given there about the making of that covenant. Josiah was not content to just have wishful thinking and just make his own private peace with God. Very publicly and humbly and powerfully, he stood in the presence of the people by the pillar there in the temple, uh, the pillar of the king, and pledged covenant loyalty to God after confessing his sins. And then we'll read here in Second Chronicles that uh, the people joined him. Um, in Second Kings, it sounds like they just all came right along, and, and they did. I mean, there is some element of that, but he also commanded it, said, you're doing this. <laughs> and they willingly came along and obeyed. So there's this covenant devotion that's part of revival, of genuine revival, that it really is not just a matter of wishful thinking and I'll get around when I come uh, to it when, I, when it's convenient, um, when I'm in certain, certain uh, company. <clears throat> sure, I'll be holy and righteous, but over here, the rest of my life, don't touch it. I'm going to do my own thing over here. No, uh, it was a matter of covenant faithfulness before God. And when he cuts a covenant, it's a, it's a blood covenant. It's not just... I, I, I really hope, I'm really planning on doing this. It was, Lord, basically the essential idea behind it is if I fail and I rebel against you, my blood is, my life is forfeit. It's that serious of a covenant to Josiah. And so when that covenant is made, he then engages on purging the land of its wickedness. And this is where the rubber meets the road for us. Because it's all well and good to talk about how holy we want to be. It's all well and good to talk about how faithful uh, we want to be and how much we love God and all of that. But if we leave in place the idols of our hearts and we tolerate Josiah is a king, right? He can structure and order things all he desires. He could do that. We're not kings. We can't go out to our neighbors and, uh, and uh, open their doors and walk in their houses and pitch out everything that we think is wicked. We might desire to do that, but uh, we should start with our own house. Um, but for our own houses, that's pretty much where we're going to have to be. But we can certainly speak against those things that, the, that are wicked in the society. At whatever cost it may be to us, it, we have an obligation to call God's creatures to repentance in His presence. And to not call holy what He says is unholy. To not call good what He says is evil. That kind of commitment to purging away a false worship and a false understanding of who God is is something that ought to be characteristic of us. And we looked at that last week. We saw how he purged idols, how he purged out the false leaders that were there, that were um, either they were Levites uh, or priests, Aaronic priests, but they were not ministering where they were supposed to be. They, they had taken to worshiping in a manner that was convenient for everybody rather than obedient. 
as well as fall, so deposing them, uh, bringing them back where they should be, but then also for those that were the out-and-out um, uh, pagan priests who were, who were encouraging and making provision for the worship of the false gods, then uh, I had them put to death, which was the appropriate, appropriate uh, punishment for those that were willingly rebelling against God by uh, erecting and worshiping other gods according to the Mosaic economy, which was the law of the land at the time. And then we saw how he took out those various structures that were even attached to the temple that made it easy for people to be wicked. And he got rid of all of that stuff. So with this purging then, now we have more or less a clean slate. So what do you put in its place? And that's where we're going to focus our attention here, uh, both uh, from Second Chronicles and the looking there at the, at the Passover, and also then back in Second Kings. If you want to turn back to Second Kings, we'll, uh, we'll kind of use some verses there at the end of the passage we were working on as the framework of our discussion, and then we'll fill it in with some of the material from Second Chronicles as well. <clears throat> So, in biblical counseling, there is a principle that is common, and I think is biblical, that it's not enough to just put off wickedness. And certainly that needs to be done. If you're practicing um, wickedness, well then that needs, you need to be setting that aside, casting off the weight that so easily besets you. There's that aspect of, of putting off those uh, distractions and the things that, that uh, tempt us and pull us away from our devotion to Christ. We need to get them out of our lives. But we need to replace them with godliness. We need to walk in a way that is righteous. We need to, in, in the place of wicked practice, we need to bring about, by God's grace, righteous practice in our lives. It's the put off, put on principle as it's summarized. And so we're, we've talked about the putting off part. Now we're going to talk about the putting on part. In verse 21 of 2 Kings 23, we read that the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to Yahweh your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to Yahweh in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of Yahweh. Before him there was no king like him who turned to Yahweh with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. So, what does Josiah put in place? He does not bring uh, other gods, just replace some, replace the false gods that were there with other false gods. According to the law of Moses, according to what he had read, he brings back a, a purity in the worship of God, corporate purity in the worship of God. You'll notice as we read there, Yes, even in the, the household gods and the other things, so in individual homes, but, all, but as a nation, he makes this the practice to put those things away and to restore biblical worship. And that really brings us full circle. What had started Josiah down this road? The fact that biblical worship wasn't happening, that the name of God in his house was being trampled upon, was despised, was demeaned. This broke his heart. 
He wanted to see worship restored. Revival, dear friends, is not just about our personal zeal and commitment and excitement about Jesus. There is excitement about the Lord Jesus. There is commitment to Him. But revival always, always results not just in personal reformation, personal restoration unto the Lord, but in corporate restoration. And it is seen in the church of Jesus Christ. Again, I cannot think of any case throughout church history that I've ever read about or studied of revival that was not characterized by renewal and new life in the visible church of Jesus Christ. It's never just an individual event. Ever. That I know of. It doesn't mean it doesn't start with individuals and that individuals aren't affected. They are. But Christ established His, his church and that, that establishment uh, is often rocked by wickedness. Our wickedness. So when we're restored, it has an impact upon the whole body. That's my point. And that's what takes place here. Take a look. He commands the people to keep the Passover. This Passover, there had been Passover. Hezekiah kept one. I was reading recently, um, as I've been reading through Second uh, Chronicles, I was reading about Hezekiah. He had a pretty slam-bang Passover himself, but not like this. This was over the top. This was incredible what Josiah did. Um, there were others that had had Passovers too. But as our text said, nothing like this since the days of Samuel. And it would never happen again. Josiah is interested in, re- in bringing back, renewing biblical observances. Biblical, if you want, you could use the word rituals, but people don't like that word too much. But it's not a bad word. It just has connotations that make us think empty religion. But it doesn't have to be. It's something that you do uh, repeatedly because it's good and right to do uh, is, is a, a good use of the understanding for ritual as well. But we'll stick with observances if you prefer. Josiah, did you notice... How many times throughout the passage in 2 Chronicles that the phrase, according to David, according to the book of the law, according to the law of Moses, according to, according to, according to, again and again and again, what God had revealed previously. This is one of the things that was red flags in my mind about recent events. Uh, that have been called revival, is that, at least from the accounts that I've read, yes, there were biblical things that were done, like prayer, like praise. Great. But as far as really being concerned about how how, uh, everything is done in accordance with God's word carefully, didn't really see a lot of evidence of that necessarily. Maybe individual cases? Absolutely, I get it. But as I mentioned before, there was um, a a delight and almost a, a, a smugness about the fact that, well, you know, we don't need the church. The church isn't involved in this. This is not about the church. This is all about us. And it's like, Ooh, time out. Genuine revival does things according to God's way, God's structures, God's priorities, not ours. And Josiah is concerned about bringing back observances that had been neglected, had not been properly entered into. He wants to renew biblical observance in the land. As it is written in this book of the covenant, it says there in verse 21, 
intended to make sure that it was done right. Um, take a look, and along the same lines of, of the observances, and what we've, I've already been kind of talking about this, kind of rolling it into one point, but I'll, I'll, I'll spread it out a little bit just for the sake of, of uh, making sure I've covered all the bases. Biblical observances and biblical faithfulness, being faithful to what had been given in writing by covenant to God's people. And we see that there, I just read it, it's written in the book of the covenant, verse 24, same thing, establishing the words of the law that were written in the book that had been found. He was interested in both covenant and in action, doing those things that were faithful to God's revelation and what God had done. Go back, if you will, to Second uh, Chronicles. And when we look at this Passover, all kinds of details in this, Second Kings 23 just really gives a, a summary of what was done. Second Chronicles gives us all the details. On the 14th day of the first month, they didn't, in other words, they didn't just do a Passover whenever Josiah thought, well, okay, let's just do a Passover now. Now think about that for a minute. Josiah has been cleaning house. He is zealous to restore the proper worship of God. What's wrong with jumping the gun? Let's get this Passover going now. It may, you know, it, I, I, I get it. You know, it may not be the, uh, the, the first month yet. Um, maybe we're in the 12th month, uh, 11th month, 10th month, whatever. Um, do we want to wait till the first month? Come on, let's go. This, if it's good, let's do it now. You ever experienced what sometimes happens when you do the right thing at the wrong time? Just from a practical standpoint, sometimes, uh, yeah, it, it can bite you. There's a few people, just a few people here that have moved here in the not too distant past. Some of you have had, I've had conversations with uh, before you moved here. And one of the big things you were talking about in our conversation was the timing of all of it. Do we do this now? Do we not do this now? Uh, it's the right, is this the right thing to do? Once you settle on, yeah, this is where we need to be, this is where we need to go, but do we do it now? Do I, or do I wait? We can get in such a hurry, can we not? To do the things that we're convinced are right, that we rush ahead of the Lord in our minds, and He lets us pay the consequences. Josiah, for all of his zeal, which was absolutely genuine, was determined to do it according to the book. So he waited to the 14th day of the first month, which is when it was supposed to be done. Even that little detail in his zeal, and his desire to get it done, he didn't rush ahead. What a great example. He appoints the priests to their offices. He encourages them in their service. He puts things... I, I love this. At first, when you first read it, I, I thought, what? Uh, in verse, in verse uh, 3, when he tells the Levites, remember, the ark was not in the temple. It was up in Bethel. It had been different places. It was time to put it back in the temple. So he tells them to put it back in the temple. Put it where it was supposed to be. And then he says, you don't need to carry it on your shoulders. Now it's like, if any of you knows anything about um, the, ark, the history of the ark, when was the last, what, what happened the last time that they didn't use, they didn't carry the ark on, the, on their shoulders? Remember Uzzah reaches out, they put it on a cart. 
So I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, Josiah, you're trying to be faithful. You're trying to do this according to the book. What are you saying? And as I thought about it for a while, <clears throat> I then calmed down a bit and realized that what he was saying is basically the ark is no longer going to be on a, on a tour. Your ark's no longer, it's finally going to rest. You're not going to have to cart this around anymore. Bring it, put it in place. You're done carrying it around, is what, basically what he's saying. So he, he restores that aspect um, as he is putting everything in place. You know, we read about this, and I tried to read it in such a way that the events of that day just piled on in your mind. Can you imagine what it was like to be there? King Josiah himself, 33,000 animals out of his stock. And we have, oh, let's see, there's another, um, another 3,000, uh, 8,000, 8,500, Yeah, we've got 40,000 40, animals. All Israel is coming together. Now, uh, coming up, there's a, the penguin plunge thing that's happening here in town next, next uh, Saturday afternoon when people of questionable rationality, go and jump in the Kootenai River for a good cause. But one of the things that uh, is happening, they asked the chaplains to prepare some uh, food. And they're expecting maybe a hundred people or so. We're not really sure how many. But even that, for a hundred people, all right, so when was the last time you prepared for a hundred or just think back to your last family get-together when you were preparing for half a dozen or a dozen or whatever. Think about the preparation that went into that. Now think about preparing for the barbecue of the nation. 40,000 animals. Hundreds of thousands of people. It took place in a day. I mean, they were going at it day and night. They, you just get the impression this was a machine. Do you think that just happened? You think Josiah just said, okay, guys, let's go do this. They went, oh, hey, all right, let's come. Let's do it. No, this was, they pre, there, all, another phrase that was repeated there in Second Chronicles was they prepared. And according as it was prepared, this was prepared, this was prepared. You know, part of being biblically faithful in revival is not just, and I hate this phrase, the whole letting go and letting God idea. That is foreign to the Scriptures. I mean, I understand there's a tiny element of truth in there that we step back and recognize that God is King and He's going to do it. Yes, okay, fine. But He calls upon us to prepare to come into His presence. He calls upon us to prepare to live before Him. It's not just a, a luck of the draw. And boy, on today, it's really a good one. So I'm, I'm really happy. I'm walking with the Lord today. And then wonder why it doesn't last because we spend no time in His Word. We spend no time in prayer. We spend no time among His people. We spend no time in any of that stuff. But want Him to revive us. Josiah prepared to be biblically faithful. He knew what was in God's word and he did not cast it aside, but took it to heart in every detail, preparing, appointing, uh, making sure that everybody was covered, consecrating everyone, making sure that everybody was doing what they were supposed to be doing. And all of this was characterized by, by this overarching or all in, maybe all-encompassing is better, uh, type of, of thought here, of zeal. Genuine, biblical zeal for the holy name of God. 
When you look at genuine revivals throughout church history, and the ones that are the, the most well-recorded are, you know, from England, Europe, and the Americas. Um, recently, there have been other times in, uh, of, of at least claimed revival in, uh, in Africa. There have been some, some evidence of some pretty incredible stuff going on in Asia as well. But zeal is something that is part of it. In genuine revival, and, and, and this is kind of the catch-22 a little bit, in genuine revival, there is strong emotion, there is strong zeal and enthusiasm for the things of God. The problem is, of course, is that's very easily imitated by our adversary. So, you know, we have to try the spirits to see whether they be of God. Absolutely. But I think sometimes those of us that are a little bit more conservative in our mindset. Yes, as Presbyterians, we, we are known sometimes as the frozen chosen. Because we look askance at anybody that, you know, gets a little excited about something. Well, I'm not too sure. We need, we need to recognize that our hearts need to be stirred up and will be stirred up in the presence of our God when He changes us, and we will be filled with joy. Obviously, that zeal. For some of us, we're a little more outwardly uh, oriented that way, but others are a little more introspective, whatever, but still there is zeal in our hearts for doing those things that are right and proper before Him. Uh, this, if we did, did, you think of, did you think about, um, when I use that term zeal, the Lord Jesus in John chapter 2, when he goes into the temple and he sees all the money changers and all of the corruption that's going on as they, again, have corrupted worship and brought wickedness into the house of God, he goes in there and cleans house. And it says there in John that this was done, that it might be fulfilled. The zeal of your house has eaten me up. And that's a quotation from Psalm 69 in verse 9. Jesus, our Lord, is the one who has cleaned house more than anyone by his death and resurrection for the sake of his people. But Josiah is characterized by a zeal that's remarkable and a zeal that, that transforms the visible worship of God. I'm reading a book right now uh, by Martin Lloyd-Jones called Revival. It's an awesome book, excellent, excellent book. Interestingly, uh, this subject of revival is something that is going to be the topic of discussion at our General Synod in August, back in Tennessee this year. And this, uh, we got the, uh, the, the, the announcement of the subject and so on, by our moderator came out two days before the beginning of the Asbury event, which I thought was rather a remarkable coincidence. Uh, and probably not a coincidence at all. But anyway, um, as Bible Presbyterians, we're going to be looking at revival very closely. I'm doing, I'm one of the speakers this year, so they sent me the book, so I've been work, working through it. But I read this very interesting uh, Statement that uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones had to say. Speaking about the results of revival, you know, there's zeal, and then there's zeal. There's the kind of zeal that's just all excitement and, and fluff and nonsense, and then there's the kind of zeal that actually changes things. Listen to what he says. The results of revival are, abide, are abiding. There are exceptions. There are some who fall back. But the great feature of revival is that the men and the women who are converted by this power that has entered into the life of the church continue. It's not that they come forward as the result of an appeal and you imagine that great things are happening until you find afterwards that only 10% of them hold, which is the figure that's expected, I am told, by most evangelists. 
That is not the case in revival. In a revival, it is an exceptional thing for people not to grow. They abide and they continue. That's the zeal that we ought to desire. Not just desiring to get excited. Now, I like getting excited as much as anybody. And I, I and it's, it's one of those infectious things, right? When people are excited around us, you know, we, it kind of catches on. And that's, that's a wonderful thing. We can hit our mountaintops, right? But we need to abide uh, in that zeal. And it's more than just an emotional high. It's a fervent commitment that's driven by passion for Christ. That doesn't quit when uh, the doors of the revival close. Well, oh, I wanted to notice something else here in the, about faithfulness and observance. This is just a little sidebar, but I, I thought this was fascinating. We see it in Second Kings, but we also see it in Second Chronicles. <clears throat> Did you notice that with Josiah, he didn't content himself just with Judah? Did you notice that? As I read through, uh, Israel is a total mess. Every king that they'd had was a total mess. And they've been now really without a king for a while because of the Assyrian exile. Josiah cleans house in Judah and then he goes up into Israel and goes through all of those tribes and does the same thing up there and calls them all back from all of that to come to Jerusalem. That is the undoing of the wickedness of Jeroboam who set up in the cities of Samaria, who set up in Bethel the false gods and another place to worship so that the, <clears throat> the priests and the Levites that were up in the northern kingdom would not go down to Jerusalem. In effect, Josiah, by this revival, doesn't just deal with the, the spiritual consequences of rebellion, of wickedness against God. He deals with the political consequences of it. Genuine revival, when it happens, doesn't just change a church. It changes a nation. So it remains to be seen these days if what's been called revival will have any real lasting impact in either church or nation. I'm not to be a skeptic, but I'm still waiting to see. Pray that it does. Obviously, God's timing is not dependent upon what I think. But it is something we need to consider. When we pray for revival, again, it's not just about our own individual walk with the Lord. It, it has an impact on everything. Josiah essentially reunites the two kingdoms at least spiritually here, which is astonishing. It's astonishing. Well, 13 days after it began, the, re, the uh, revival, as it was called, at Asbury University was over. Due to logistical issues at the school, the administration of the school shut it down. Said, we're all done. And though there were some trickling effects afterwards, it was done. So it does tempt me to ask how, if this was really all of God, how a school administration could, could stop it. I don't want to go there. Uh, nonetheless, it remains to be seen if there's going to be any lasting fruit to that uh, that comes out of it for the honor of our Lord, for the growing of the visible church. And for the renewal of righteousness and a consciousness of, of an offended God in our nation. Do not be led astray, dear friends, by the excitement of external emotional responses that do not meet biblical criteria for genuine revival. Concern for the witness of our God's name 
concern about conviction of sin or covenantal renewal before him and a corporate restoration of pure life and worship in our own hearts, in our churches, and in our nation. All according to God's word. Those are the things that we need to be looking for. And let us start as we're looking for it by praying for the revival of our own hearts. Peter asks this question in 1 Peter chapter 4. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Let us pray God, humble ourselves before him that we be revived. And then let our revived hearts faithfully call a fallen world to repentance and new life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, for the, the account of Josiah. What a remarkable, a remarkable man, remarkable circum, set of circumstances. Lord, let us not just look at it in wonder and awe and, and, and hope longingly that somehow this will happen to us. Lord, I pray that we would make preparation on our knees, in your word, in prayer, and be ready to move when you call upon us to move, ready to do those things that are right and pleasing in your sight according to your word. Revive our hearts in zeal and, and lives that are committed to walking faithfully in your presence. And then, Lord, let the, the revival that takes place in our hearts spread. Renew your church. There's so much wickedness, so much false religion that has crept in. Lord, help beginning with our own house and then as we have occasion to call our brothers and sisters to repentance and faithfulness, let us do that. Lord, bring revival among us. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.